So we will be continuing on in Colossians again this morning, and just want to say what grace that God gives us week after week to be able to join together in worship and the assembly of the saints and true worship of God is a truly a gift that sustains and carries us throughout the week, and it encourages us and it refreshes us and it reminds us of our sin and our need to carry our sin to our great God and Savior. Let us never forget, forsake the assembly of the saints. So we'll be looking specifically at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. Let's read from verse 1 down to 14, though. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the, in the of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning. I thank you, God, again for your word. I thank you for your preeminent power that you display through your Son as he died for our sins and was resurrected again on the third day. And how through him you qualify us, God, to share in the inheritance and you deliver us from the domain of darkness. I pray, God, as we look into your word, your word, word, first of all, prepare my hearts, Lord, my heart and also the hearts of those who hear. God, I pray that your word would be spoken and not merely opinions, God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 9. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So from the day we heard, this phrase clearly connects verse 9 with the verses previous to it. Previously, we have already seen how Paul is full of gratitude because of their faith, the faith of the Colossians, their love and their hope. He is thankful that they have heard the true gospel from Epaphras and that it is evident that they have heard the true gospel because of the fruit that it is bearing in their lives. And so from the day that Paul has heard, now that the gospel is working in their lives and how it is working in the church in Colossae in the house of Philemon. Paul has not ceased praying for them. These verses that we're looking at, verses 9 to 14, is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. 
And Paul informs them what the intents of his prayers would be. That they would be, A, filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they would walk in a manner worthy of God. That they would bear fruit. That they would increase in their knowledge of God. That they would be strengthened by His power. And that they would have endurance, patience, joy, and thankfulness that God has delivered them from the power of darkness and the devil and are now under the power of the sun. The believers in Colossae were fairly new believers. They were still quite susceptible to the deceptions and schemes of Satan, which essentially forms the context for the letter that Paul wrote. They were new believers being deceived by false teachers. We can see that in Colossians chapter 2. If we flip the page over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this, the things that he is writing, he say this, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, so that they would not be deceived. Jumping down to verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Remember, they were taught by Epaphras, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So in verses 9 to 14, Paul provides us an example to uphold not only believers, but especially new believers in constant prayer, that they would be strengthened by God's power through their knowledge of God, that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding in order to walk in a manner worthy of God and resist the devil and his schemes. For this reason, Christians must have knowledge of God and spiritual wisdom and understanding to prevent deception which is why a Christian must diligently and intentionally spend time in God's Word and spend time in prayer. As Christians, we must be disciplined. Deception is when wisdom and knowledge is offered apart from God. And the deceivers in Colossae were offering wisdom and knowledge in human tradition and in the spiritual realm and not according to Christ. To have knowledge of God's will means that our minds must be engaged and not attempt to discover God's will through how we feel or through inner impressions. To have knowledge of something means we are sure about something with our minds. It means we actually know it. Therefore, to know God's will is to not merely have an inner impression which is entirely subjective and can cast doubts on whether what we feel is genuine and true. It is through knowledge of God's will, as revealed in the Bible, that we are sanctified and that we are transformed. And it starts in our minds, not with inner impressions. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When our minds are sure, then our hearts will be sure as well. And it's interesting how our hearts will always follow our mind without exception. It always does. Deuteronomy 29.29 teaches that God also has a secret will, which we need to be less concerned about than His revealed will. Deuteronomy 29.29 reads this, The secret things... 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So the things that God has not revealed, they are the secret things. They belong to God. The things that are revealed belong to us. That we may do the words of the law. Yet most of the time when we, seem to, when we seek to know God's will, it happens to be something that He has not revealed in Scripture. And this is always done through inner impressions. Such as starting a new job maybe, or maybe deciding if we should go on a mission trip. And we end up treating God more like a fortune cookie or a fortune teller, trying to determine our future, instead of truly trying to determine His will. We so often spend so much time doing this, trying to discern the future for our lives, that we forget to try and discern God's will as He has clearly revealed already in the Word. So, for example, how would this maybe look like if we think biblically about something like a mission trip, for example? First off, God is not more concerned about unbelievers in Mexico, Bolivia, China, or anywhere else than He is about unbelievers in the Crete. There is no verse telling us to go to China, telling us to go to Mexico, or telling us to stay home. So how do we know? So if you do decide to go on a mission trip, what does the Bible say about missions? First off, that it should be done through a local church. That missions is about planting churches, reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ. The Bible tells us to count the cost. And the Bible has clearly revealed how we are to live our Christian lives no matter where we are if that might be in Mexico, in China, or the Crete. There are unbelievers who need the gospel, no matter where we are. There is work to be done in the church, in our families, and in our homes. We need to stop being so consumed about the future, trying to determine our future, which God has completely under control. And let us be consumed about, no matter where we find ourselves, we are obeying and living according to the word of God. It is His will that we are thankful. This is His revealed will, that we, are, that we are to be thankful, that we are to be joyful and sanctified, that we love God, that we love our neighbor, that we do not lie, steal, covet, cheat, murder, or bear false witness. These are all God's revealed will for our lives. And if you or anyone end up going to China or Mexico, that's wonderful. And when we go there, we need to live according to the Word of God exactly as we would live according to the Word of God here or anywhere else. To be clear, I do believe, I do believe that God does divinely lead and direct us, but it is one thing to constantly try and determine what the future holds for us, and quite another to not worry about the future and worry instead on how the Bible tells us to live daily our life in the here and the now, not only in the future. This verse is telling us to know God's will and how He wants us to live our life, and no, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will is not trying to determine what God's will is for our future. It's trying to determine what is God's will for us right now and how we live our life every day. Knowing the will of God will result in holy living before God. Knowing and growing in God's will results in spiritual wisdom and understanding 
the second part of that verse. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. You can have knowledge without any wisdom, but you cannot have wisdom apart from knowledge. John MacArthur comments, Spiritual wisdom is the ability to accumulate and organize the principles from Scripture. Spiritual understanding is the application of those principles to daily living. Spiritual wisdom is the ability to accumulate and organize the principles from Scripture. Spiritual understanding is the application of those principles to daily living. Therefore, consequently, verse 9 leads into verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Spiritual wisdom and understanding will inevitably lead to and, lead to and enable believers to walk in a manner worthy of God. Christians should desire to walk in a manner worthy of God. In fact, it is God's will for us and we are called to walk in a worthy manner. Contemplate who God is and what He has done for sinners. Is God not worthy of our best? Is God not worth it? When we were not walking according to Scriptures, are we not saying that God is not worth it? In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, the people were not offering their best to God. They were not providing Him with their first fruits, and they were foolishly keeping the best for themselves. Malachi 1, verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food um, upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to the governor. Will he not accept? Will he accept you or show favor? Asked the Lord of hosts. These people were not offering God what he was worth. They were not offering him the best. And to walk worthy is a call to commitment where God deserves our best. Where we recognize that we are reflecting our Savior to a lost world. And how we live our life. We need to be all in in our devotion and commitment to Christ because he is worth it. Fully pleasing to God has two parts in this verse. If we look at Colossians 1.10 again, fully pleasing to God has two parts here. To be fully pleasing, we need to, number one, be fruitful in every good work. And number two, we need to increase in the knowledge of God. To be pleasing to Him. Being fruitful in every good work means we are to live out our lives in good Christian practice. Christians not only worship God Sunday mornings, but Christians live it out during the week. They serve Him throughout the week. Serving in itself is a form of worship. God has described how a Christian should live in their home, how a Christian should live in their church, in their community, and in their workplaces. Thus, we are to bear fruit in everything we do. Paul restates what he says in verse 6 where in verse 6 he shares how he has heard how, how they are bearing fruit. And now in verse 10, Colossians 1.10, he continues to pray for them that they will bear fruit. A Christian should never not be growing. 
The analogy of the fruit is precisely how the life of a Christian should look like. From the day he is saved, the Christian starts to grow spiritually. Like fruit, he is nourished by the tree which sustains and to which he clings. Fruit never stops growing. Not only does it grow, but it it increases through the seeds that it has produced. The life of the Christian should increase through planted seeds and produce an abundant harvest for the kingdom of God. Again in verse 10, Paul reiterates the importance of not only growing in the knowledge of God's will, but also growing in knowledge of God, so that we are able to live a life pleasing to God. We need to grow in knowledge, we need to grow in wisdom and understanding in order to avoid deception and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Remember Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2 go hand in hand. In chapter 1, Paul is building up who Christ is. In chapter 2, he is describing what the false teachers were trying to deceive the people with. And he is holding these false teachings in light of how he describes who Jesus Christ is in chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And again I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul is setting up godly knowledge against worldly knowledge, which is contrary to who Jesus Christ is. Godly knowledge sanctifies and bears fruit while worldly knowledge puffs up. I know we have often heard that phrase, well, knowledge puffs up, with the intentions of trying to convince somebody to avoid it. And it's a negative connotation towards having knowledge. Yet in Colossians, Paul clearly tells believers to grow in knowledge. So how does this fit together? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 to, to 8. Verses 1 to 3 here speak of a worldly or false knowledge. Some were claiming to have a superior insight and knowledge concerning food that was offered to idols. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8, it states that food does not commend us to God, and that we are no worse and no better off if we eat what is offered to idols or if we do not eat it. Therefore, this superior insight that verses 1 to 3 was talking about is in reality false and worldly knowledge contrary to Christ, and therefore it puffs up. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This, the false knowledge, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, which in this case is the food offered to idols, he does not yet know as he ought to know. As described in, as described in verse 4 to 6, is what we ought to know. Clearly comparing two types of knowledge with only one of them being bad. So in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating, so now Paul is describing what is true knowledge according to Christ. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, and knowing is knowledge, that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess the true knowledge, the good knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And it's clearly comparing two types of knowledge, worldly knowledge and knowledge according to Christ. And it is the worldly knowledge that puffs up. Any knowledge that is not according to Christ is worldly knowledge. So next time someone exclaims knowledge puffs up without proper context, ask them how they know. In reality, it is a self-defeating statement. Pleasing God and true spiritual growth will not happen apart from increasing in godly knowledge, according to Paul in Colossians. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 also advises us to long for the pure spiritual, spiritual milk in order to grow up into salvation. Understanding that Paul here is con- contrasting the pure spiritual wisdom that can only be found in Jesus versus what was being offered by the false teachers in chapter 2. This helps us to understand that as Christians we can stop always seeking after new experiences and spiritual highs, which was exactly what the Colossians were being told to do by the false teachers. We can stop seeking after new experiences and we can start growing in the experience that we already received when we were saved. Let's grow in that. It does not get any more spiritual. You will not get a more spiritual experience than the time when you were saved by God. And that does not necessarily mean that you will actually feel some kind of supernatural experience. Sometimes there are some who do, but it is not always that either. But it is still a spiritual experience when we were saved and it is that that we need to grow up into. Verse 11, Colossians 1.11 May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So verse 11 is the result, the fruit of verses 9 and 10. Strengthened by His power for endurance and patience with joy is the result of being filled with a knowledge of God's will and applying it in our lives. It is a result of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and increasing in the knowledge of God, growing in knowledge of God, increases our understanding of Him which inevitably increases our faith, which in turn causes us to trust Him more. God desires for us to rely upon His strength and to be enduring and patient. Not only does He desire this, but He commands it. Not only does He command it, but He then also graciously gives us the ability to endure with patience and joy. Remember Paul's circumstance. He was in prison for a false accusation when he was accused of allowing a Gentile to enter the inner courts of the temple in Jerusalem, something that he actually never did. Yet here he is enduring four years of imprisonment and preaching patience. Through our growing in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, 
we will be strengthened for endurance and patience to persevere in the faith and resist temptation and resist deceitful schemes of Satan through the working of false teachers. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you and who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of, of light, of the saints in light. So therefore we give thanks to the Father, knowing that every good gift comes from God. The gift of strength, patience, joy, thankfulness, all come from God. It is a working of the Holy Spirit inside of us through His Word. As we grow up in Him, it is the only gift of God that qualifies us. There is nothing else that can bring qualification. Not out of ourselves, not from any false teachings that are added to the Gospel. Let's jump ahead to Colossians chapter 2 again in verse 18. Remember, Paul is constantly comparing chapter 1, chapter 2, godly knowledge with false knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. As Paul does time and time again, he is contrasting the pure knowledge of God in chapter 1 versus the false knowledge in chapter 2. True knowledge of God qualifies. In verse 12, while the false teachings of human tradition, asceticism, relying on visions and claiming superior insight into the spiritual realm through experiences and angel worship, rules and regulations, is unable to qualify. The false teachers seem to be, seem to be trying to convince the Colossians that they were disqualified until they added these false teachings to the existing gospel that Epaphras had already taught them. Paul assures them that what God has qualified through the gospel can never be disqualified. And don't let false teachers convince you otherwise, is what he seems to be saying here. Back to verse 12, to share in the inheritance is an Old Covenant, Old Testament language usually reserved for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. It alludes to the Israelites when they receive their allotments, their inheritance, and the land of Canaan. Joshua chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Joshua 14, verse 1. These are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the house of the tribes of Israel, gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribe. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, the word inheritance as used here literally means for the portion of the lot. It is used in other places in the New Testament when it speaks of casting lots. We can understand verse 12 to mean that believers have been qualified by God to receive an allotment in the inheritance of Abraham's children as through being through being grafted in as God's chosen people. As Romans chapter 11 speaks of, we were grafted in the children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29 says, we are, if we are in Christ, 
that we are children of Abraham, and therefore we have been qualified to share in this inheritance. God's promises of an inheritance are ours as well. This inheritance of the saints in light represents everything that God is in the word light. Darkness cannot coexist with light. Light is pure. Darkness is an absence of light. Light represents the divine truth of God as revealed in His Word. Psalm chapter 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Since God is represented as light, then the false teachings represent darkness, deceptions from Satan. God's light is pure, and trying to add anything to God or the gospel is nothing more than attempting to taint that which is pure. We are to stay away from anything that attempts to add to the gospel, because in Colossians 1 verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We have been taken out of darkness and put into light. Because God has qualified us to share in this light, in His light, that means we can no longer live in darkness. But we must instead expose it as light does. The false teachers in Colossae emphasize the power of darkness, the power of demons and of evil spirits. Paul continually warns against this, and instead he emphasizes the preeminence of Jesus Christ and how he has made all principalities and powers his footstool. Yet once, at one time, all believers were willing participants and servants of the power of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were only qualified for doing evil, for doing the work of Satan. We were only qualified for God's wrath and not qualified for the kingdom of the Son. Until while we were still his enemy, Romans chapter 5, he qualified us, he reconciled us to himself, which is the act of delivering us or taking us out or removing us from the domain of darkness, from out of Satan's power and into the kingdom of the Son. Paul does not say that Satan doesn't exist or that Satan is completely harmless, but he says for the believer Satan has been disarmed and he no longer holds power over the believer. Colossians 2 verse 10. You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled in Jesus. He is the head of all rule, principalities, and authority. Colossians 2 15, jumping down to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Hebrews 2 chapter 4. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
we have been transferred out from Satan's power and into God's power. Acts chapter 26 verse 18 describes describes this. So, uh, yeah, verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From darkness to light. And it says from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And again in 1 John 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. To be transferred means we have been taken out of one place and have been placed in another place entirely. We do not have one foot in the darkness and one foot in the light. We do not have one foot in the, in, under the power of Satan and, and one foot under the power of God. We have been completely transferred. We've been taken out and removed and placed in the kingdom of the Son. Unfortunately, and the understanding among many Christians of Satan's work and the work of his evil forces is sadly misunderstood and is a lot more closely aligned with exactly what Paul is warning the Colossians of. To not attribute more power to them than they deserve and instead attribute the power to Jesus Christ. This misunderstanding is usually perceived through experiences and not biblical convictions. And it has led to a theology of spiritual warfare that has caused great harm where Satan has deceived many, many believers. Just like he was doing in the Colossi church. Remember, Satan can easily alter and cause deceptive spiritual experiences even. But he can't alter God's word, which is why we must get our theology about who he is from God's word and not through perceived experiences like the Colossians were doing in chapter 2. The Bible says Satan can come as an angel of light. He is a master deceiver. Spiritual warfare today consists mainly of attempting to cast out demons, binding Satan, and praying spiritual hedges of protection. Not only that, but a faulty view of demons will lead to a faulty view of man. Let me explain this. If, you ask to na- if I asked you to name someone from the past who you think may have been demon-possessed, who are you going to name? Most will probably have someone like Hitler on their list. Now let's compare Hitler with how the Bible describes someone who is demon-possessed. Frothing at the mouth, seizures, self-harm, superhuman strength, and so on. Yet there is nothing that we know of Hitler that suggests that he had any of these characteristics. Based upon scripture, Hitler would not have been demon-possessed. Yet we view people who are a certain level of evil. They're more evil than we are accustomed to as being demon-possessed. And when we do that, we completely disregard what the Bible says human beings are, wicked and depraved. And if not for the grace of God, we would be no different than Hitler. A proper view of Satan and demons is crucial to having a proper biblical view of mankind. Satan does not make us do anything. It is our depraved nature that makes us do what we do. The Bible does give examples of casting out demons, but nowhere is the New Testament church instructed to do so. Probably one of the more popular proof texts is found in Matthew chapter 10. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 10 for a minute.
Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaiming as you go, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. With every passage of Scripture that we read, we need to determine whether what we are reading is a narrative In other words, is it a story that's being told, or is it prescriptive? In other words, is it something that that we are to take as instructions for how we are to live our life? A clear example of this is Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament. Just because Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test of faith, does that mean that each one of us will be called to sacrifice our firstborn son as a test of faith? Of course not. It is a narrative. It is telling us something that happened. And although we can still take principal truths out of a story, we, st- we are not to take it as something that is prescriptive, as in it is something that is instruction for us. And we have the same thing here in Matthew chapter 10. The first verse tells us to whom these instructions were given and to whom was given this special ap- ap- apostolic authority. The twelve apostles. Jesus was speaking to the twelve apostles. He wasn't speaking to to us. And just to be perfectly clear, Matthew even goes on to give us specific names to eliminate any confusion about who might, may and may not be called an apostle. Then these twelve, Jesus said, or the scripture says, these twelve Jesus sent out and told them, don't go to the Gentiles but only go to the house of Israel, only go to the Jews. If this passage were instructions for the church today, then we would not have authority to do these works among Gentiles. Yet the people who point to these verses as a proof text do indeed attempt these works among Gentiles. So we have to take the whole passage as either prescriptive or narrative. You can't just pick and choose certain verses out of the whole thing. Therefore, it is clear This text is to be taken as a narrative and not prescriptive. Notice also even how Judas Iscariot was given this special authority. Judas Iscariot was given this power. An unbeliever. A wolf. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7 to those who claim to be able to cast out demons. Depart from me, I never knew you. We must never discern if someone is a true or false teacher by the works they do. But first and foremost by what they teach, and then also by their works. So how are we to be free from Satan's clutches? If someone truly is demon-possessed, how is that person to be freed? According to the Bible, by becoming saved, by giving their life to Christ. That is how we are transferred out of the domain of darkness, from under the power of Satan into the power of the kingdom of the Son. Through salvation we are transferred from evil to light. He is our king. Christ is our king and our protector. 
Since God is our protector, we are instructed in Ephesians to put on the armor of God because He protects us. We are not protected by our own strength and we are not to attempt to rely upon ourselves for our protection. Ephesians chapter 6, very well-known passage of Scripture starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The armor of God is a metaphor. It is not telling us to literally put on armor, to pray on armor, or to visualize armor. The armor itself is not the focus. What it represents is the focus. It is merely a metaphor to help us understand that in order to withstand Satan in spiritual warfare, we must stand firm in the truth, in righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, God's word, and prayer. Note the offensive weapon. The sword is the soldier's weapon to attack. As Christians, we do not engage in spiritual warfare by verbally attacking Satan as demons by making demands of them, telling them to flee, or by binding them. Honestly, Satan is probably bound thousands of times around the world every day, literally. If it actually works, then someone obviously keeps letting him go. Our offensive weapon is the Bible. We actually engage in spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6.12, every time we pray, every time we read the Bible, every time we go to church, every time we have fellowship with other saints, every time we share the gospel, every time we engage in deeds of righteousness. This warfare happens all the time, and it is done through our minds, not through possession, but by oppression. Today, Satan's only attack on a believer is through their mind, convincing a believer to believe lies either about themselves or about God. One way Satan does this deceptive work is through his ministers of deception, false teachers. This is precisely what he was doing in the Colossian church. Yet Paul is saying, grow in the knowledge of God and understand that you have been transferred out of the domain of darkness. Understand this. These are Paul's instructions how to engage in spiritual warfare to the Colossians. We must be filled by the knowledge of God through the word of God in order to avoid deception. The Christian spiritual battle is a battle of the mind. The mind is always Satan's target through lies and deception. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It says, but I am afraid, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is why, as believers, we must have strong spiritual minds. 
Remember, again, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 19, it says that the man is a reflection of the heart. So Satan's goal is to destroy the life of the believer through his attacks on the mind, through his deception. A corrupted mind will lead to a corrupted life. And if Satan can get a Christian to think contrary to God's word, then you will see a Christian who lives contrary to God's word. Thomas Watson said this, that this is Satan's masterpiece. If he can keep them from believing the truth, he is sure to keep them from obeying it. Think about a military leader who diligently studies intelligence reports and information on the enemy before entering battle. The intelligence report on Satan is in the Bible. Therefore, ignorance of the enemy will never be a valid excuse for defeat. God has given Christians a clear edge in the battle against Satan with advanced inside information of the enemy. No human possesses the supernatural power of Satan. But the Bible says and portrays Satan as a schemer. In other words, he must plan. Satan must plan and think ahead. In light of God's sovereignty, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and the preeminence of Christ, as Paul describes in Colossians, in light of these, Satan's power is laughable. God does not need to plan and think ahead. He just knows. He is the I Am. As long as we live here on earth, we will be engaged in the spiritual warfare of the mind. Hence, Paul's instructions to the Colossians, how do we deal with Satan? According to Scripture, we stand firm, Ephesians 6. We need to submit to God and resist the devil, James chapter 4. And abide in the word, John chapter 8. And he has given, Christ has given us the power to do this, because we are in his kingdom. Verse 14 in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is through the work of Christ on the cross that we have been redeemed and qualified, that we have been purchased and redeemed. To redeem something is to purchase something. If you walk into a store and purchase a pack of gum, that gum is now yours because you have purchased it. You have redeemed it. It is bought and paid for. If you are Christ, then you have been purchased by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. Your sins have been forgiven because He has paid for them. He owns you. You are protected by Him. You are His property. He is your King. You may not always be protected here on earth from physical harm or emotional harm, but you are protected in salvation. And God does work all things together for good. You are in the kingdom of the all-powerful, preeminent God of the universe. Having been redeemed and purchased from the domain of darkness, you are safe. Christ has qualified you and reconciled you to the Father. In closing, if this day you have not been redeemed, and if you have not been forgiven, call upon the name of the Lord. Ask Him to help you understand the gospel. How you are a sinner and are unable to come to Him apart from His help because of your sin. Believe that Christ will take your sin upon himself and will bear the punishment due to you because of your sin. The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 
asked the most important question anyone could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? This question is so important it must and it deserves to be answered from Scripture. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I thank you, God, for who you are, for your preeminent glory as you sit upon the throne, the ruler of the universe. You have taken rulers and principalities and made them your footstool. You have disarmed them by your death on the cross. I pray, God, as your instructions tell us here this morning in Colossians, that we will grow in knowledge of your will and grow in knowledge of who, of you. Because in you is where all the mysteries of wisdom are to be found. Help us, God, to be diligent. Help us, God, to be diligent Christians living out our life in a manner that is worthy to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.